0: everyone. I hope that you are all well. Just getting something off my screen, sorry. Um, so today is going to be kind of different. Um, I am going to go back to Being in Time, Heidegger, since that's what I'm currently reading. Actually, I am just starting chapter four, so I finished chapter three last time, A uh, part two. Last time we talked about, yeah, I think just the whole of chapter two. This time I did mark some quotes that I usually annotate quite a bit, and but I did like double annotate some quotes this time that I thought were helpful. So chapter three is called The Authentic Potentiality for Being a Whole of Dasein, which is kind of a nice idea, right? That we are whole, that that is a essential part or quality of being and temporality because being in time the first part is being the second part is time as the ontological meaning of care so what is the relationship so heidegger's understanding of care is kind of a proactive relating to the world So we are beings, and I think he says that in this chapter, we are beings that are concerned for our own being. And uh, that especially makes sense to myself with anxiety, because I feel like I'm always concerned with my own being. Uh, You know, is something going to go wrong? Um, Am I, you know is something bad gonna happen etc you know so so that's pretty much being concerned with with my own being um but care can also just be that we uh, you know we attend to ourselves to maintain and sustain ourselves we um use things that are around us in the world we project ourselves into the future we um you know, are constantly encountering and relating to other beings in the world as well. So care en- encompasses kind of the our situatedness in the world, but also our action in the world. And so uh, what that has to do with time, um, right now, off the top of my head, I can just think of, because Heidegger does talk a lot about Death. how being towards death, thinking about death will allow us to have a more fulfilled life where we can reach our potential and we can understand for ourselves what is really important. And I kind of think of the idea that might be a little cliche, Um, it's probably even in a country song, you know live like you're dying or I think of Nietzsche's purpose behind the eternal return which is his uh you know his idea that I do a video on it but I'll just explain it quickly here I think it's in the gay science um book four maybe where he says imagine that you know a demon comes to you i think it is and says that you will have to live the exact every single moment of your life now you will have to relive it for eternity so whatever you've done in the past and whatever you're gonna do in the future all of those moments will be your only moments and you will relive them eternally so nietzsche says we can either Uh, say this is the biggest curse I don't want to relive this life you know if I have to be resurrected and come back like let it be again there's something on my screen let it be something easier like I need an easier level you know let me just rest for a bit Um, or we can say I guess maybe there's three responses or we can say oh my goodness I've had such a wonderful life this is amazing I love it Um, and maybe along the same lines, but maybe a little more neutrally, we can wake up and say, oh my goodness, um, all right, this is good on the one hand because I have power, maybe not over my past, but now that I know this information, I can make sure that I make every moment count. And is this what Heidegger's saying, you know, about our being toward death, it being so important? I don't know, that's what I'm getting out of it. So I have to say that for chapter three, I almost wasn't going to talk about it. And I probably will go back and talk about the rest of being in time and do it just kind of as a like a reread and figure it out what I can say about it and remember about it. But I don't have um, a coherent understanding, like a whole thematic understanding of this chapter. So I'm going to see if I can come to that. I can come to it uh we can come to it together uh you know open your texts um and if something comes to me i don't know this could be a video where we just watch me fail at understanding this to a, a higher degree at this moment in my life and time so but again i'm in chapter three which is basically. Of part 2 which is sections 61 to i think 66. Yeah. All right. So the first quote that i underlined that i thought was important and i kind of tagged maybe the first theme is potentiality but i mean he talks about potentiality through the kind of the whole thing so I'm not sure if it's unique to this chapter. Um, so it's at the bottom of my page, I'm using the Stambaugh tradition or translation. Uh, I think I'm going to get the, I don't know. I forget what his name is. Mercue or Mar- Marquis or something like that. I don't know. The Macquarie. I think that's it. The Macquarie translation, I th- think. I might actually like that translation better but i got this one i'm not gonna lie i am taken by a cover and i thought the cover on this was going to be so beautiful but it's it's actually not it's kind of blurred and i don't know anyway all right so kind of the beginning of 61 what if resoluteness so remember last time we talked about being resolute knowing who you are like the oracle at delphi tells us and uh, being steadfast and this helps us be authentic because we can be honest what if resoluteness following its own meaning were brought into its uh, authenticity only when it no longer projects itself upon arbitrary possibilities and this is this is interesting. I think that he wants us to move more toward intention, and he feels like our falling prey and being entangled in the they with a capital T. Um, we are kind of we just kind of choose what's already laid out, which is random and arbitrary. Why is it random? And our ar- why is it? Well, let's just use his word. Why is it arbitrary? Or whatever it's translated whatever the german was translated into arbitrary um maybe because we live in a particular we're thrown into a particular historical time a particular culture and uh, that itself is somewhat random if if you think we could have been born anywhere in any religion that's you know one experimental thought right thinking about relative truth truths um so so maybe that's kind of arbitrary because it's not all our options so it's just it's just some of our options and we didn't filter it we were just thrown into these options so he really wants to move us out of our taken for grantedness our limited thinking and yeah our limited uh yeah thinking and maybe feeling i don't know um he doesn't much talk about moving beyond moods unless it's projecting ourselves into anxiety that seems seems like we're thrown there so anyway um so it's something about if we want to meet our fullest potential our options need not be arbitrary So I spoke a lot. I'm just going to go back and start that sentence again. What if resoluteness, following its own meaning, were brought into its authenticity only when it no longer projects itself upon arbitrary possibilities merely lying nearby, but rather upon the most extreme possibility that lies ahead of every factical potentiality of being of Dasein? And as such, so why the extreme? Because we want to know everything. to, To reach your fullest potential, you have to know, you have to go to maybe the extreme. What's the limit? Because if there's something beyond the potentials that you see, then you could go further, right? But you can't go further than the extreme. And as such, more or less enters without distortion every potentiality of being of design factically seized upon. So what more can we see? What are we not seeing? It's what I wrote in the margin. This always reminds me, I don't even know if I've mentioned this yet, but it always reminds me of C.S. Lewis and a theological writer and what he says about why God is God. God is God, C.S. Lewis says, because that being can see everything clearly mortals human beings we are kind of thrown into our chaos did c.s lewis read heidegger i don't know um to look up that chronology and history um but human beings see through a glass darkly we kind of it's why we're confused sometimes and we're trying to figure out a difficult relationship or what we should do or how we should feel in a situation we need like a clarification uh you know we can't see it but god is god because they can see it instantly they instantly know everything that's going on they can see it from all angles etc It's kind of like, this also then reminds me of uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, who is a Mexican spiritualist. He wrote The Four Agreements. And he talks about how, you know, if you want to live your best life, his solutions for us, right? Heidegger is just teaching us how to live our most authentic lives. Um, Don Miguel Ruiz, um, you know, being rooted in Toltec uh, mythology and spirituality and traditions, says that, for instance, we need to not... We are clouded. We see through a a glass darkly when we take things personally. Because actually, in reality, seeing things clearly, you know, wiping off the the muck of the lens that we're looking through at a situation that we've, like, had hurt feelings by or offended by or been made self-conscious... He says that, you know, in reality, it's not about us, usually. Usually. Or at least not about us in a correct way. Um, So we might, one of the examples that, sorry, um, I think that he gives, is that you're walking down a hallway, maybe of your school, of your workplace, whatever, someone that usually, one of your workmates um, that's maybe friendly or a friend, Um, at least you see every day you're on good terms they usually you usually walk by them and like smile and say hey like whatever but that this morning that you're walking across the hall and you're approaching this workmate they um, just kind of walk past you mostly ignoring you or maybe they look at you and they're just you know they give you what you interpret as a dirty look um, so on the one hand, you know, like you, you're gonna have to make an assumption if you don't talk to them and ask them what's up. But let's say that you interpret that you that makes you feel bad. You feel like what you ask is, "What have I done wrong?" or "Why doesn't? Do they not like me?" or "What's going on?" I mean, you might assume that it's it's all about them. But that's where Ruiz is giving advice to the people. In the first camp that i just mentioned they're saying no probably your co-worker is having a bad day maybe your coworker was frustrated because they didn't hear the alarm and coffee spilt on them and they you know traffic was really horrible and they're just really unhappy that morning and so it has nothing to do with you it shouldn't make you feel bad if anything, feel concerned for them and then ask them what's wrong later. But not assuming that anything's wrong with you or between you, but it's just something that's totally with them. But if you want to help them out and talk to them, fine. So it's kind of the idea that, you know, you shouldn't be so self-conscious when you're giving a presentation in front of a classroom because the percentage of attention that is on you instead of, you know, people's attention just always being on themselves is, because uh, everyone's always already self-conscious, is is minimal, you know? No one's gonna, you know, care as much as you that you mispronounced a word or that you got stuck or whatever, you know? Everyone has so much on, going on with their lives, they're gonna worry about them. So... right so I was like why did I go off in that um because of the the word distortion right and as such more or less enters without distortion every potentiality of being so the enlightened the authentic person can do what Ruiz is saying and can be like the god that C.S. Lewis imagines and see things clearly without distortion you can see beyond what everyone just non-thinkingly accepts so that's one thing i mean how is that different from you know what he has been saying i guess because now he's already talked about resoluteness and our resoluteness has something to do with this so we should not be resolute about we should think about what we want to be resolute about i guess would be the new thing in this chapter So going on to the next, um, still in this section, but in the margins, there are numbers, which I guess, I can't remember what they refer to, pages in the German, but around 303, still in this section, but page 290 in this translation, thus the development of anticipatory Resoluteness, because this is a particular type of resoluteness, right? We should be resolute but anticipating. And I really don't remember talking a lot about that, or I can't exactly remember what that meant. Maybe we'll figure it out. Okay, so thus the development of anticipatory resoluteness as an existentially possible authentic potentiality for being whole loses the character of an arbitrary construction. It becomes the interpretation that frees sign for its most extreme possibility of existence. Okay, to me that just says exactly what the former quote in the last paragraph said. Alright, the next one I underlined ontologically and I think I paused there because the existentially possible I think it's the, the fact side of our lives because it has two l's remember there's existential and existential existential relates to the ontological relates to the deeper layers of our being so we can then apply it to and help out our existential or ontic or factical um everydayness okay so ontologically dust sign is in principle different from everything objectively present and real so whatever is objectively present and real does not help us understand who we are at our core so this seems like just kind of a rapid, a repetitive reminding and that's what i really felt i don't i don't know anyway we'll just go on um so i guess we can ask our ourselves then just looking at my note in the martins um what is objectively present for us and then what can we think about that's not objectively present i think at some point he says that whatever the ontological understanding of our being is so the dasein the being that's there is just opposite of whatever we is immediately before our eyes opposite in the sense that it derives from something that's ontological but it kind of gets twisted in the in the on the way to expressing itself objectively. And so it's kind of two sides of the same coin. And again this reminds me of CS Lewis, which I read so long ago when I was an undergrad. I remember reading The screw tape letters, specifically, in a Barnes and Noble, because back when I was going to undergrad in the 2000s, the early 2000s, Barnes and Noble was the place to be. I had not discovered hipster coffee shops, nor do I know if they existed, um, where I was in Oklahoma City, on the north side. So, they might have. I was just probably not cool enough. Barnes and Noble was cool. Anyway, um... It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis says about again, the direction that we should go, that sort of the vices of our world, of humanity um, are just one side of a coin that needs to be flipped in order to be closer to the divine and to be and to realize, you know, I don't know. Does C.S. Lewis think that we are divine, maybe. Need to go back and read him, I guess. But so, for instance, if we are so, I can't remember any of his examples exactly. I want to say that envy. Um, if we're feeling envy, envious, on the other side, what the deeper sort of center of goodness is for us? Like when you're envious, what what is it you? you hate that someone else is is succeeding more than you you want to be like them you want to beat them they just seem to have everything and, uh, and be exactly your ideal the other side of that coin could be love you know so and that's how you could change your mindset because it's a close it's so close together the envy and love so you could really just flip the coin over and realize you know, love the fact that there's this, you know, sort of beautiful ideal representation of success and goodness and power and think positively congratulatory you know things about that person so you know imagine that and if everyone you were ever envious of if you would just be overfilled with love for them that that exists in the world and that can inspire you and if, if that if that person didn't exist you wouldn't know what's possible you know think of it like that you can be inspired by knowing that that's a way that you can work toward in your own unique version of what it is right so i think that that's maybe that that's what makes that's what i think of when i think of heidegger saying that you know this very condemning sort of statement ontologically design is in principle different from everything objectively present and real that's what i'm thinking c.s lewis is is gentler i guess all right maybe sometimes all right the okay the next one soon after in the same sort of area ish the phenomenon of the self included in care needs a primordial and authentic existential definition So he's going to be, I think, in this chapter talking about selfhood and that you don't automatically, we don't automatically get a self. Self, So it's kind of like Simone de Beauvoir in The Second Sex. Um, Yeah. Uh, No one is a woman. We become women. A woman is something that you become, which I guess leads to Judith Butler's gender is performativity Maybe. um so so the self in order to really understand the self and he gets into the self the superficial sort of inauthentic selfhood how that gets represented and that gets represented in our articulation of the eye so when I say I am this or I think or I believe, he says that people who are not sort of in tune with their authentic selves oversay I. And we might we might say that this is narcissistic. If you look at someone's writing and I think I'm... <laughs> I'm at fault with this, Um, probably. Uh, You know, there are more creative ways to say things. We don't want to start every sentence, like let's say in, well, in an essay, we really really wouldn't. Let's say, well, I mean, I let my students use first person in their essays, because I like confessional first person kind of writing. Um, But still, even if you use first person, You want more variety in your sentences than always starting everything with I. And also you never need to say I think or I believe in an essay because uh, it's yours. Like we know that everything that you're saying, you think unless you say on the contrary or some people say, or others might think, you know? So we otherwise, you know, you never need to say I think or I believe. But you definitely, as you're using I throughout your first person essay, you don't want to always use i but the but heidegger sees that as a signal that we don't understand the self maybe that we're not confident in the self i don't know so he mentions the self here and he mentions that we need to talk about the self in an existential way so the next quote is in uh, um I think i'm gonna talk about the columns 304 but page 291 on mine if the ontological character of its own being is remote from Dasein because of the dominance of its entangled understanding of being so da 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 I just underline part of that just to remind myself that the reason that we're on the wrong side of C.S. Lewis's coin is because we are entangled, because we are dominated by our entangled understanding of being entangled in the in the day. And so he mentions a lot. Um, he uses the phrase the vulgar understanding, because he wants to put that on the shelf. Uh, kind of like I said in the last video, I think um, he wants to shelve what seems obvious in order to get to a different kind of deeper understanding to see what else is there. And so he calls the common understanding of things like time, he wants to redefine. He wants to redefine self, he wants to redefine time. He wants to, his whole book is he wants to redefine being. Um, But there's some truth in the vulgar representation or if there's not truth in it we can understand we can make a connection between what heidegger is striving to find out and what is manifest in our objective present reality um so uh, so this is then the other line that i underlined the reason for the dominance of the vulgar understanding of time so yeah so that's that's what i got so far moving on to section 62 um he starts talking he he introduces the a question about death um it's titled the, the section 62 is titled the existentiali so not existentially existential the ontic authentic potentiality for being whole of sign as anticipatory resolute resoluteness so i guess maybe the section is 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 more about our everydayness how we can improve it something like that i wish it were that general um then it would be a self-help book and yeah okay so i mean i didn't really underline it because i didn't necessarily get his point about like if he was saying anything new about death that wasn't what i already mentioned in the beginning but he asks what he asks is the first sentence the first question of section 62 to what extent does resoluteness thought out to its end so again we should be reflective about our resoluteness before we just jump into being resolute you know think about what you value and prioritize before you put a stamp down on it and Nietzsche would say actually you know I mean you, you could I guess think about it but Nietzsche says that his habits always evolve that he doesn't mind a habit that you need to have habits you know he likes habits but don't expect his habits not to change but I think Heidegger wants a more prolonged <laughs> habitual self maybe okay so to what extent does resoluteness thought out to its end in accordance with its own most tendency of being lead us to authentic being toward death that's his question and my answer would be i don't know um here's one that i didn't expect to point out but i underlined a phrase this is on page two 93 we conceived of death existentially so not with an e with an a as what we so, okay so they both have two l's um as what we characterize as the possibility of the impossibility of existence that is the absolute nothingness of Dasein death is not tacked on to Dasein as its end but as care does sign is the throne that is null, ground of its death. And then he goes on to say, care contains death and guilt, equi mortally. But hold on. So, I just try to reduce this to ideas that I can get and apply to my life. But let me know in the comments if you. Are reading the section or you have read it and you can put me you know right put me straight um i think it's again this is just going to be my simplistic interpretation um we conceived of death existentially as what we characterize as the possibility of the impossibility of existence so death doesn't death is something that we should think about constantly And maybe, concerning this impossibility of existence, I think that, if we even go to Schopenhauer and a pessimistic worldview, that our everyday assumption might be demanding or asking life, why isn't it better? why isn't life we just take life as it is that life that that existence exists as for we take that for granted i think in our everyday thrownness of the entangled in the they and so we take it for granted so then that leads us to the question asking why isn't life better than it is you know why do humans why are humans why are our bodies so sensitive to pain and I think one thing that Schopenhauer says, um, I might have watched this in a in a lecture, video lecture that I watched recently, that you know Schopenhauer is displeased because I think it was him, um, sounds like him, because our ability to experience pleasure is finite. our ability to experience pain is infinite that we are so much more you know so for instance when your body feels good when you're well when you're healthy you don't think about anything right you're not focused on your um any part of your body because everything's just you know smooth and wonderful but it's kind of neutral you're not jumping for joy usually that you're healthy but when something is amiss when something goes wrong um You know, you're, I don't know, I'm just going to mention this because this is what I'm dealing with now. Your gums are sensitive because you had too much cold-pressed juice and been brushing your teeth too hard or something, I don't know time to go to the dentist I guess but um you know then it's like oh this afflicts you and you're worried about it and how do I fix it and like can it be fixed and it's interrupting my enjoyment of life and my focus and all these things where suddenly suddenly it, it, it's like before us right and so And so we get to, but anyway, the dissatisfaction is the problem, right? And Heidegger is not, uh, you know, he's not being a pessimist, I don't think. Uh, He's not really, uh, you know, upset about life. He's really focused on our misperceptions. And so we, we go too far. We have to, Heidegger wants to pull us back and say, Well, how do we even like we should be in awe? Maybe, again, maybe I'm completely off base, but when I look at impossibility of existence, um, perhaps we should be in awe that this is even here. That it's so wonderful thinking constantly. It's so wonderful that we're allowed to enjoy the pleasure of seeing, you know, if we are. Um, enjoy whatever pleasures that we have, and we're all different, right? We're all in different situations. But I recently heard, I think on a meditation track or, I don't know, somewhere, um, that just the reminder that even on your worst day, no matter who you are and whatever your position is in life, whatever your situation, whatever chronic illness you're dealing with, whatever, you know, just happened to you, that's not great, etc., On your worst day, there's still going to be someone that wishes that they were you on your worst day because that's better than where they are, you know? So it's all relative. I don't know how far you want to carry that, but I think it's just bringing us back to a different kind of mindset is what maybe, you know, we can get from this from the impossibility of existence just what i I get okay so going forward page 294 still in the same section but the margin says 308 so 308 in german that's just what i'm gonna say because i think that's what it is um kind of close to that uh the next quote that i wrote down in chapter three but this means that it simply cannot become rigid about the situation okay so going back the question is what then does the certainty belonging to Let's see in this i don't know why i didn't i'm gonna underline that for myself for few for the future because you don't understand that quote until you read the sentence that kind of has a it. okay so what then and this is in italics so it's super important I guess what then does the certainty belonging to such resoluteness mean so once we get past all of the arbitrary options and we focus on the extreme and we know what comes before that and then we decide we're resolute we're certain about it what does it mean well, but this, so this means that it simply cannot become, okay, so I need to actually, I skipped a sentence too. I should read that as well. Let's just read it all. What then does the certainty belonging to such resoluteness, resoluteness mean? The certainty must hold itself in what is disclosed, and disclosed is means coming to light, being, you know, revealed, what is disclosed in resolution but this means that it simply cannot become rigid about the situation but must understand that the resolution must be kept free so this is a little caveat about the the resolution lest we take it to our own extreme must be kept free and open for the actual factical possibility In accordance with its own meaning as a disclosure. The certainty of the resolution means keeping oneself free for the possibility of taking it back, a possibility that is always factically necessary. This holding for true and resoluteness as the truth of existence, however, by no means lets us fall back into resoluteness. So I think this is kind of a nice sentiment that he's bringing up. Um, because it's kind of like the, the appropriate response to advice, any advice that anyone gives you, advice that you read, advice that you hear from your professor, advice that you, whatever, encounter, you kind of take what serves you at that moment best practices are take what serves you and then you know shelve the rest maybe you'll need it later maybe it'll work for you later maybe it never will but the point of advice is to be helpful right so it's not so what is not helpful is to you know become sort of rigid and dogmatic and uh, yeah rigid is the best word I think to, uh, to the extent that the advice actually hurts you because it doesn't serve you. You have to be able to be wise enough. We all have to be able to be wise enough to discriminate and to give ourselves the grace and the authority to, or the agency, authority might be a triggering word, right? To the, the agency to decide and to know. To know ourselves and to know what's helpful and to be okay with doing that. It's not all or nothing. Um find what works for you. And so I think that Heidegger is in his, he doesn't want us to misinterpret resoluteness, but he wants to give a little space for it so that we can always be authentic. Because are we really being authentic if we're making, you know, we never want to make something into an idol, right? So You know, at some point for some people, it might've been nice to look at the Christian God as father, right? So, you know, thinking about, and everyone might be different, but one potential ideal idea of a father is a parental guiding figure who is, um, and then, you know, I mean, seeped in tradition right and probably heteronormative understandings but let's just describe it without prescribing um you know kind of a someone who's wise someone who can guide you who can be firm when they need to and who can be also you know nurturing who's, who's going to be there who's going to be vocal who's going to you know whatever whatever you know and then that's one example but <clears throat> whatever maybe people thought about fathers whenever that idea or that metaphor got attached to the christian god Supposedly, I'm assuming it was a good thing and that's why they want to call Godfather. So that's, that's fine and that's great. But feminist theologians have critiqued that metaphor saying that, I'm just looking at the time, um, saying that it's become an idol. It's become frozen to the point where saying God the mother is sacrilegious and blasphemous and it, it's, it brings up... It triggers some people, some people in the church. You can't say God the mother, God isn't a goddess, God isn't female or a woman. That's pagan. That's, you know, whatever it is. But why? You know, because then feminist theologians will go through the, you know, Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures and say, but there are all of these beautiful feminine metaphors for God as well. You know, so what about that? What about Sophia? What about, you know, the mother bear who protects her cubs? You know, that refers to God or, you know, there's various female um, feminine metaphors. So it's, it's not that, it's, that that it's, you know, outside of the realm of what even the Bible says so so we have so we can't idolize and reify a value or a priority or a duty um for eternity without applying wisdom and discrimination and being open to as heidegger says taking it back you know that's how that's his idea of how to be an authentic person is to never stop reevaluating and, re-fle- and reflecting, even in your resoluteness and steadfastness. But yet, it doesn't mean he says also that we go into irresolutes, irresoluteness. Like he doesn't want us to say, well, everything's re- fall into probably doesn't want us to fall into ethical relativism and say that well okay what i have thought about no longer serves me or no longer makes sense or doesn't make sense in this situation so i mean well nothing matters then like i just think whatever i want so so he's saying that's not it either you know stay open but then don't fall into nihilism where nothing means anything um that's one definition of nihilism. Because that is not we can't lose hope like that. That's not what he's is suggesting is authentic. He wants us to stand for something. So, okay. Um so so that's kind of, you know, a nice little piece of sentimental advice. All right. So the the next one very close after that that I underlined and we have, yes, Anchor is telling me that I only have 15 minutes left. We'll see. We may not get through this whole chapter. Well, we will on YouTube. So if you are listening to my podcast, it'll be in part two. So, all right. We'll have to take a, we'll have to take an intermission. All right. And it's also what's 639 where I am we have time I feel calm okay all right the holding for true that belongs to resoluteness tends in accordance with its meaning toward constantly keeping oneself free that sounds sounds fine that is to keep itself free for the whole potentiality of being of design, Because even if we say, okay, we've read Heidegger, we understand, we're going to start exploring the potentiality, maybe it's a lifelong goal, you know? So maybe we come upon something certain about ourselves at this point, but we should still keep perhaps learning. Because we are always, we are never way we are never not a potentiality right that's his potentiality of being okay of design so then it says which again i didn't double highlight but is is jumping out to me now in its death okay i'll just read that I won't skip a sentence this constant certainty is guaranteed to resoluteness only in such a way that it relates to the possibility of which it can be absolutely certain and b is emphasized and italicized this constant certainty this is why i didn't underline the sentence because i didn't understand it okay so this constant certainty is guaranteed to resoluteness only in such a way so what is the certainty the holding for true just keeping we're certain that we should keep ourselves open maybe this constant certainty is guaranteed to resoluteness only in such a way that it relates to the possibility of which it can be absolutely certain yeah i don't know in its death sign must absolutely take itself back So in its death, sign must absolutely take itself back. So we're resolute about something, but in our death, in its death, sign must absolutely take itself back and take itself back as inclinations. I don't know, you tell me. But does sign so what could it mean though i don't know i think that in its death does sign. i mean if we're still talking metaphorically here then thinking in terms of death and rebirth really to go through that process. So looking at death existentially and not existentially. So not factically, but maybe a deeper, more abstract understanding of death, which I don't know if that's where he's going here. So you might be screaming at me in the video saying that's not what he means. Tell me in a comment. Um, but if he does mean it existentially. that's the only way I can understand this at this point is that in its death Dasein must absolutely take itself back that there is a transformation that happens and we take back the values of our former self after our rebirth and transform and change sounds like an easy interpretation to me but that's all I can say about it okay so this is kind of interesting even though I didn't double underline it but Dasein is equiprimordially in truth so when it says equiprimordially, it means that it's before it's it's so connected with us it's before we even think about it or decide about it and it happens at the same time so Dasein being equiprimordial Morty, mortally in untruth is just meaning that we are both in truth and untruth in our essence. Just like we are never not thrown or fallen prey except I think infrequently there is a there is a quote that makes me think this but infre- infrequently we are not thrown. We are returned to ourselves from our lostness okay so you know i think i'm going to pause right there i will come back you will not notice it looks it'll look like an edit but i'm going to pause the zoom so that i can finish my well if you're listening to the podcast i'm going to end here and pick it up um, in uh, part two. But I will be right back for this video.